Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. I gotta say, I had a lot of fun doing the research for this episode. It was very eye-opening, full to the brim with information, and I really hope you enjoy it. hope you like it. So I will just, uh, let's, let's just get right into it, you know? Let's not have a long intro. Why, why, why you know, drag this out? It's like it's like an uncomfortable relationship that, frankly, I don't want to be a part of anymore. So let's just let's just skip right to. The- we live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers, and if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public. If it's something that oh I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature works. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. So nice to be back. Um, I've been traveling for the last few weeks. I went back to the United States of America to go visit some friends and family, which was very nice, as always. And uh, I guess as well to witness firsthand the presidential nominees and the campaigning season. Things I'm coming away with. Yeah, terrifying, terrifying election. Uh, And just please, please register to vote. Please vote because, Lord help us, this is really just terrifying, terrifying election, potentially. Uh, But anyway, enough about that. So, um... As most of you may remember, a few weeks ago we started a series on products that contain animal ingredients in them. If you don't remember, I'll refresh your memory. The first episode was about glues and adhesives. The second was the secret life of shellac. And now the final part, the concluding part of this series, is going to deal with the expansive and relatively well-funded field of medicine. I say relatively well-funded because, as a marine biologist, uh, or coming from that background, when you compare the funding that you get for marine biology, because that's the only thing I can really speak to, to, I don't know, pharmaceuticals and the medical field, yeah, definitely a difference, folks, because anything that's going to benefit humans or ensure the survival of humans is, you know, going to take priority, so going to get a bit more funding. Which, I suppose, makes sense. Fair enough. Uh, that's that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's the way the cookie crumbles. Now, some of you may already be aware, others maybe not, but there are many medical interventions sourced from plants and animals. I'm going to be focusing more on the animal side uh, on this episode. In fact, solely, pretty much, on the animal side. And, basically, I'm going to be shedding light. In fact, all the frickin' light on this fascinating topic, and it's gonna feel like the frickin' Times Square of information. It's gonna be so goddamn bright, so much light. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Wow. 
WoW is right, little lion cub. Oh man, if only you knew. Now, because there's so much to cover, and I'm trying to really pander to your feedback and keep these episodes on the shorter side, <laughs> I know, I spoil you, but I hope you know that. I've decided to divide up this episode into subtopics, so you can pause and leave and then come back in an organized fashion to your leisure. Alright, so the first topic that we're going to cover is animals used in medications. Medication. Fascination. A summary of our nation. It's a little poem I just cracked out for y'all. <laughs> and don't worry, you'll get a bill in the mail. Now, as much fun as it was to write that little ditty, there's actually some meaning behind it. You see, prescription medication use has been steadily climbing over many a year in the U.S., and people take them for all sorts of reasons. Heart problems, cholesterol, depression, ADD, etc., etc., etc. And, you know, we used to think, or at least I used to think, kind of only older folk needed meds. But now it's almost fashionable to need to be prescribed something. You know, you're a cool kid if you've got a prescription. I'm not going to take my own bait and politely and probably enthusiastically rant about the pharmaceutical industry and healthcare industry and their focus on treatment instead of prevention because that's a bit too off-topic and admittedly I'm only partially informed on the subject so as much as I would love to talk out of my ass and you know I do love to talk out of my ass I will look like more of a fool and an asshole than usual so in this case no no rant but the reason I'm doing this episode, and why I think it's important, and also the reason why I think it's important to know what ingredients are in your medication, is because so many of us, and myself included, almost blindly take medications all the time. Now, a study by Tatham and Patel from 2014, which was published in the British Medical Journal, also known as the BMJ, looked at the top 100 commonly used medications prescribed in the United Kingdom and found that 74 out of 100 meds contained some form of animal ingredient. That's a lot of schnitzel, if you know what I mean. So a variety of animals are actually used for different medications to treat a long list of ailments. Alright, let's start with the most commonly used animals, which among them are cows and pigs. And because I have a special affinity towards cows, we'll start with cows. Lactose. Lactose derived from cow's milk is one of the most commonly used ingredients found in medication today, and its primary use and function is as a filler and binding agent for pills, for capsules. Now, when it comes to our swine friends, our little piggy friends, well, they're used to make blood thinners, or what's called anticoagulants, and the end result is heparin. Now, the way this is done is the pigs are killed, and then they have their intestines cut out and removed. The intestines are then squeezed to collect all the mucus inside of it, and then they're heated to produce the raw form of heparin, which is then used in ingredients for blood thinners. 
Now, the last few years have actually been a bit of bad news bears for pig-loving heparin folk because there's been a few deaths and, you know, close calls possibly associated to a contaminated factory or factories where they were making sausage casings on the side in these heparin factories. So there was a, a bit of a concern and a push to maybe switch to an alternative. Now, aside from these more specific uses, cows and pigs actually share a few common medical uses. The two probably most popular ones are insulin and gelatin. Now, I will say as a caveat that you can get alternatives to both insulin and gelatin that don't contain pig and cow ingredients in them. However, that's where the history is, and it's still on the market. Uh, so I will say, though, for gelatin, it might be a bit trickier because gelatin, and if you remember our episode about shellac, they're both used to make the outer shell of pills, to make the kind of containment of the capsules. So you can imagine quite a lot of pills out there. Uh, now, gelatin also has another role. Additionally, it's used as a stabilizer for different medical products. For instance, vaccines. Something I really didn't know. But yes, some vaccines do contain a pig-based gelatin um, because it's a, it's a decent stabilizer, apparently. Now, you know, I could go on and on. There are numerous other examples of animals used in medications uh, when it comes to the actual factory production and manufacturing of the medications, uh, when it comes to the testing of medications. I mean, tons of examples. Horses, mice, fish, shellfish, insects, I mean, even bacteria. And as always, I will post many of those links on the blog and you can look it up yourself though I do urge you you know you can do your own research don't leave it all up to me good good people um, but yes so you would be surprised by the variety of different species that you can find in your medications alright so y'all are doing really really good A plus I'm gonna mention one last example about animals used in medication and I have to say in my own humble opinion it is both interesting and educational. What a combo. I know. Alright, so one of the biggest and longest standing breakthroughs in biopharmaceuticals can be traced back to the Chinese hamster. Actually, more specifically, the ovaries of a female Chinese hamster. In fact, more specifically, the ovaries of one female Chinese hamster. You see, in the late 1950s, a bow tie wearing geneticist by the name of Dr. Theodore T. Puck was able to extract and isolate some cells from the ovary of one of these hamsters. Now what's fascinating is that Dr. Puck and his lab found that these cells continued to divide and multiply well after they were expected to. I mean for much longer than other cells that had been cultured at the time and thus dubbing this Chinese hamster's ovary cells with the title immortal cells. Pretty, uh, pretty dramatic, I know. Now what does that have to do with pharmaceuticals? Well, my understanding is that most proteins used for drugs are difficult to reproduce in a lab because they're big and they're complex structures. So, instead, what these very brilliant folks do is they produce DNA in a lab. That DNA is then inserted into a living cell. The cell reads out the instructions given to it by the DNA and develops the protein because that's what the instructions said to do. 
So this newly constructed protein is then processed in the basis for medication for these pharmaceuticals, hence the name biopharmaceuticals. So let's recap. Why these hamsters? Well, the ovary cells that were extracted from these hamsters, they're easy to manipulate, they grow quite quickly, and for long periods of time, remember, immortal cells, and as well, they can be grown in large quantities for industrial operations. So basically, they're friggin' efficient biological tools to help treat a multitude of diseases. If you want a further explanation, I posted a link on the blog to a five-minute YouTube video of a very affable and charming PhD student explaining in greater detail and probably a lot better phrasing about biopharmaceuticals and Chinese hamster ovary cells. Uh, if you're interested, the actual story of how the Chinese hamsters got to the U.S. is pretty gripping. It's basically like a furry rodent Chinese version of the Ben Affleck blockbuster Argo. Argo f*** yourself. But actually, I mean seriously, it's a very, very interesting story. Very fascinating, so check it out. I'm pretty sure I put a link to it on the blog. Alright, anyway, hopefully you're not only coming away from this segment with a little sliver of knowledge about animals used in pharmaceuticals, but you've gotten a little taste, and that taste has now made you curious to do some of your own research. And I really genuinely hope you do do your own research, because there's awesome stuff out there. I can't cover everything, and, you know, it's always, it's always a good skill to have to be able to do your own research. Alright, that said, we're going to move on to the next section, which is about surgical transplants. Alright, so there are two sides to this next section on organ transplants. The first is kind of just a little bit about organ transplants and a little bit about their history, or at least the modern history. Uh, and I, I just, I think it's important to know at least a little bit about this. So, organ transplants are literally, if you don't know, life-saving procedures that have saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of lives all over the world. Now, while they might have the potential to save a life, transplants are not without their risks. Complications during and or after surgeries can leave permanent damage and sometimes the most permanent damage, aka death. Or as some people may call it, Paul Bruchel. This is why research and testing is so, so, so important. In fact, I don't think I can emphasize any more than I already have on how important it was, or is, but rather, let's move on. So, it was in the early 20th century when animals began to enter the picture. And as advances were made in suturing veins and arteries and skin together and so on and so forth, surgeons from around the world started to become intrigued. And it was in 1902 an Austrian surgeon named Emmerich Ullmann conducted the first relatively successful, depending on how you define success, kidney transplant from one dog onto another dog's neck. And, you know, the kidney actually remained functioning for a good five days after the surgery. This procedure was so groundbreaking that it was published a week after this was presented to a medical board. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the fastest goddamn publishing time that I've ever heard of, damn it. Anyway, a few years and a few French surgeons later, what sounds like some B-horror movie plot began taking place. They had rabbit, goat, and pig organs start to be directly transplanted into humans in a procedure called xenotransplantation. Uh, 
Suffice to say, all the patients died. Surprise, surprise. Though, I will say not in vain, as these procedures contributed greatly to our understanding of what makes transplants successful. Now, after another 20 or so years of animal-to-human transplants and subsequent deaths, folks decided to try human-to-human transplants, which also failed for various reasons. Notably, they waited too long to collect the organs from dead people. So, something that keeps popping up in these episodes is that in wartime, we seem to have spurts of these advances and developments in science like technology. It shouldn't be any surprise, with this in mind, that in World War II, in an attempt to save soldiers burned in combat, the British began to test skin grafts from rabbits. And though many of them didn't survive, the notion of a body rejecting foreign cells from a transplant began to be realized, which is a big deal. That's very important. Now, as we reach the 1950s, we start to get closer and closer to successful transplants. Another surgeon named Norman Shumway conducted a handful of dog-to-dog heart transplants. Now, it was this preliminary work on canines that led to the first human-to-human heart transplant in 1967 by a South African surgeon named Dr. Christian Barnard. Now, though the patient didn't quite make it past three weeks, the surgery was replicated and refined all around the world, with pioneers from France, the UK, the US, a few more countries kind of leading the way. Now, of course, transplants were still a pretty risky endeavor, but this was partially mitigated by the introduction of pre-operation prep, such as the distribution of corticosteroids and better post-operation care. Today, transplants still have the inherent risks, but we've already come a long way from 1967. And, you know, when you put that in relative terms, it's a fairly short amount of time. Which brings us to the second part of our section on organ transplants, where we'll be discussing in a bit more detail and bringing up a few more examples of xenotransplantation. Again, for those of you that don't remember, xenotransplantation is the transplanting of organs into humans from a non-human source, from a different species. All right, so to some extent, we actually still use xenotransplants today. For example, when people need a heart valve replaced, there are two options that arise. You can get a mechanical valve, or you can get a biological valve made from the tissues of either pigs, cows, or horse donors. And you can also get from human donors, but that's not xenotransplantation. In fact, I, I will say my friend Jonah the Goober Nelson had to have emergency heart surgery a few years back and currently has a biological valve made from a combo of cow and horse. And as far as I know, there aren't any major side effects. I mean, aside from the fact that he's began to chew his cud, which is weird because it shouldn't be biologically possible, but, you know, whatever. Anyway. Now researchers are kind of looking into expanding this field. Discussions of using pig organs for human transplants has been cropping up around the medical field like whispers from the shadows. Now, why pigs? Well, a study by Dr. Marlon Levy in 2000 titled Animal Organs for Human Transplantation, How Close Are We? explains, and I quote, a long list emerges when we consider the preferred characteristics of animals appropriate to be organ donors for humans. First, the animal should be of compatible anatomy and physiology for the intended organ to function well in humans. 
Next, no possibility of cross-species, i.e. animal-to-human infection, should exist. In fact, an ideal animal donor should resist human diseases, especially viral as well. Further, this animal species should be inexpensive to feed and breed, with short gestation times and multiple births per litter to achieve economies of scale. Such an animal should also present no immunological barriers to transplantation into humans. Finally, use of this animal in this manner should engender little or no ethical controversy. An animal species meeting all of the above criteria does not exist. And these are all very important and very good points to consider. But he goes on to write, the pig with its large litters up to 10 litter mates, short gestation time of four months, anatomic and physiologic similarities to humans, and what he means by this is that pig organs are actually a similar size to human organs, and he continues, uh, that pigs have widespread use for human consumption. An estimated 90 million pigs consumed yearly in the USA, and long history of providing medicinals like skin, insulin, cardiac prosthesis, clotting factors, etc., all for humans. So it's for these reasons that Dr. Le Levy or Levy is explaining why he thinks pigs are the best candidate for transplants. Maybe not the ideal. Remember, he said no species that would be perfect would exist, but the best that we have. Now, remember that study was published in 2000. Fast forward to 2015, and everyone has just kind of gone with it. Labs from around the world are trying to come up with new ways to use pigs. One company called RevivCore has begun to breed special pigs. What makes them so special? Their mother tells them so, but also, they've had five human genes added to the pig's liver, kidneys, and heart, so that, theoretically, a human immune system won't identify the organs as an enemy foreign body and attack. Now, surgeons at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in my home state of Maryland successfully transplanted these specially grown pig hearts into a baboon stomach. This isn't some human centipede stuff. This was not done to actually test heart function. No, 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 no. You see, this was to see if the baboon's immune system would attack the foreign pig heart. Just so you don't think it's completely random to use a baboon, the reason they did use a baboon is because humans share a little over 90% of our DNA with our Rafiki friends. That is two Lion King references in this episode. Just want everyone to know that. Anyway, so this baboon that had the uh, pig heart in its stomach survived for 945 days. That's around two and a half years. And seemed to have died only after the doctors stopped administering the immunosuppressants, which kind of indicates to us that the main obstacle is the rejection of transplants by the immune system. However, there are other doctors in the field that think, will overcome this problem, that, you know, uh, the immune system attacking foreign body is not the biggest obstacle, but rather complications from the transplant and surgeries, you know, like blood clots and inflammations, are a greater risk and, and a greater issue to focus on. Now, most leading researchers in the field will agree that we are still a handful of years away from actually getting anywhere near human testing. 
you can be sure that this will be a big deal when they do get it right, as there are organ donor shortages pretty much around the world. Now, of course, with all this in mind, the question comes, should animals be farmed so that we can harvest their organs? I mean, if you just think about it abstractly, it gets a bit science fiction-y, you know, what's the next step? If we mass produce them, will we have animals that are supposed to be for organs being fed the same diet of corn and antibiotics that we feed the, you know, mass produced industrial food industry, the battery farm? Is, is it different to farm animals to eat than it is to farm animals to save lives? Well, I guess you could argue that that's the same thing, though we are a gluttonous society, but still, but still. Now, I mean, there are really, there are quite serious and somewhat terrifying ethical scenarios that, you know, can be played out, and we really need to think hard and discuss about, you know, what these outcomes could be. Now, my personal views is that if we can grow steak and burgers in a lab, and yes, it has been done, we can grow burgers from a petri dish, why do we have to farm these animals? Surely, we will, at some point, be able to grow organs as well. And, you know, I know that doing the research for this, we found that stem cells can be used to grow kind of less complex stuff, you know, like a windpipe, I think. But to grow organs might be a bit of a reach. It might be a stretch. And, you know, this just shows that there is a limit for now. And I think as well that, you know, combined with mechanical alternatives, I think that is better than creating an entirely new industry uh, of of battery farming and again it will have to be a new separate from the animal for consumption industry and we don't really need another one of these kind of battery farms uh, on a commercial scale and its various adverse effects notably the environmental ones but you know this is just my own personal thoughts I would love 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 to hear your thoughts on this subject I really would. So please, please write me at theimposterpodcast at gmail.com. You can find it on the Facebook or on the blog as well. Or, or if you want, you can actually email me an audio clip of your thoughts on this subject and I'll put it in the show and you can get your five minutes of fame. Everybody wins. There you go. All right, so we're kind of clocking up the time here. So I'm going to give you all a choice. I have one last segment to do, and I think it's interesting because it's history, obviously. Uh, but for those of you that are getting bored and this is getting a bit too much, you can either turn me off now, or you can continue to listen and uh, expand your mind and not be so ignorant. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. So, there's an interesting history to animals in medicine. For those of you that are avid listeners of The Imposter, and, and I know all of you are, you might remember our guest segments a couple weeks ago by Duncan Morton from thoughtyououghtoknow.blogspot.com, which, by the way, it's a great blog. Please check it out. Good friend, great blogger, very interesting stuff. Uh, now, for those few folks that haven't listened to it, you should get on that, but I will summarize. Basically, 
Duncan was ranting about different cultural traditions and superstitions that used animals in medicine, like rhino horn, elk horn. Actually, elk horn is funny because I, I was in Norway last weekend and I literally saw in the store elk horn sold as a sexual performance enhancer. To be fair, I've never used elk horn as an aphrodisiac, but I don't know. Anyway, the point is, is that there are a lot of different examples. Rhino horn, elk horn, tiger penis, I mean, the list goes on. There are tons of examples from around the world, from all different cultures and peoples, claiming medical benefits from various limbs and organs of animals. Now, most of which we've now tested and concluded that it's balderdash. Or, as my friend Colin Inavity and the only other person I know, Senator John McCain, like to say, malarkey. But the use of limbs and organs of animals for medicinal purposes is only part of the story. I mean, we, we have this fascination that can be traced throughout human history of combining humans and animals together. There was a 2012 peer-reviewed paper called A Brief History of Cross-Species Organ Transplantation. And in it, they talk about a variety of things, but one of them is, you know, Greek mythology, going way back, uh, citing creatures like centaurs and, and gorgons. Gorgons are like, like Medusa, the woman that had snakes for hair. Uh, and, and even stories of humans transplanting animal parts onto them, like Icarus attaching bird feathers so that he could fly away and escape the labyrinth. I mean, we have examples from all around the world. We really do. There's the Hindu gods and deities like Ganesha that has the elephant head, or Hanuman, who I believe is the monkey deity. I mean, even even modern pop culture references these these sorts of combinations. There's the H.G. Wells classic, The Island of Dr. Moreau, who, you know, was a doctor on an island that turned animals into humans and gave humans animal parts uh, and... They spoofed this on The Simpsons, they made a movie in the 90s, they made a movie in the 70s. Uh, and even more modern pop culture references, Jumanji. I could probably go on muttering and stuttering and stumbling trying to think of many examples, because there are tons of examples. I won't bore you with that, though. You get the idea. So, the point is that we've had this fascination with human and animal hybrids for a while. So it should only be a matter of time before the logical step of combining the two actually occurs. So, sure enough, in the 17th century, a French doctor known as Jean-Baptiste Denis, no, you know what, I, I love saying that, Jean-Baptiste, such a fun name. Um, anyway, so Dr. Denis started performing a few experimental blood transfusions between animals and humans. Now, the British claim that they had the idea first and Jean-Baptiste stole it and there's a huge back and forth I'm citing Jean-Baptiste because his story is a bit more interesting. Um, anyway, so Jean-Baptiste was doing these blood transfusions, and the animals that he used for the transfusions were chosen depending on the purpose for the procedure. For example, the first patient that he ever did this on suffered from high fever. So, Dr. Denise used the blood from a sheep, which at the time was thought of as a kind of calm and relaxed animal. So they thought it might help the boy's fever. Surprisingly, actually, the boy did survive this transfusion, um, and actually, as did the second patient that Dr. Denise performed this on. Unfortunately, the third patient did not survive, and the good doctor was charged with murder. 
I will say that that was probably a, a bit political, mainly because nobody really liked him. I mean, seriously, nobody liked this guy. The British didn't like him, the French didn't like him, so that that's what the history books say, at least. Anyway, so we have that early example of blood transfusions between animals to humans. Now, later on in the 1800s, animals of all shapes and sizes were used for skin grafts. Sheeps, frogs, rabbits, I mean, you name it. There wasn't much success that was found in this practice, but, you know, they used it nonetheless, and it was another trial and error for medical history that was, you know, had its purpose. Now, from the mid-1800s all the way through to the 1900s, transplants of corneas from pigs, sheep, uh, dogs, rabbits, gibbons, cows, even, even fish, actually, were experimented with, and once again, there was little success emerging from this, but nonetheless, important work to be done paves the way for future advances and breakthroughs. Uh, so, from this time period in the early 20th century, we come back to the history of organ transplants that I spoke about earlier, so I'm not really going to get into it. If you want to, you can rewind this episode and do it on your own time, but I think that since we've come full circle, we should wrap this burrito up. You know what I'm saying? All right. Thank you to everyone who's listening right now for all your support, as always. If you're interested in learning more about what ingredients are in your food and medicine, again, I think it's important, I would recommend this book that I found when I was doing the research for this episode called Veganismo A to Z by Proctor and Thompson. Uh, even if you're a meat eater, I will say this book is eye-opening. It really it kind of lists all the ingredients that are found in modern-day meds, um, and, and a bit more. So definitely check it out if you're at all interested and curious about what you're putting into your body. As always, supporting information for this episode will be up on the blog, which can be found at theimposterpodcast.wordpress.com. This is basically just supporting information of everything I've talked about. It has the links to articles and peer-reviewed uh, papers and YouTube videos, so on and so forth. So check it out if you're interested. Again, I really, really am interested on hearing your thoughts on that question that I posed earlier about organ harvesting and farming. So send those emails, send those audio clips. Love to have you on the show. Um, so yeah, last but not least, don't forget to like and share The Imposter on Facebook, Twitter, bathroom stalls, and really to anyone you know that might like this podcast. Um, because... You know, why not spread the word? It's like spreading the good book. It's spreading the good podcast. You know when I start to equate myself to the Bible that it's time to wrap this show up. So I'm just going to say stay tuned. we got some great episodes coming up. And uh, that's about it. So we will see you next time. Toodaloo, good folk. Toodaloo.